1: This is the Naked Genetics
2: Podcast, taking a look
1: inside your genes. There's more to life than the four letters of DNA, and our cells use a chemical tag known as DNA methylation to mark out certain parts of the genome, helping cells to remember what they're doing. And as you might expect it's pretty important.
2: These patterns are fundamentally altered in human cancer. In fact, can be used to silence genes which are important in the development of cancer.
1: Plus, how your GCSE success could be encoded in your genes, an important molecular cause of autism has been identified, and an illuminating gene of the month. This is the Naked Genetics podcast for August 2015 with me, Dr. Kat Arney, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. This month, I'm reporting back again from a fascinating meeting I went to up in Edinburgh, a Wellcome Trust Waddington Symposium entitled Epigenetics in Dialogue with the Genome. We tackled the wonderful world of epigenetics in last month's podcast, exploring some of the ways in which genes get turned on and off during development and disease, and now it's time to turn our attention to one of these marks in particular, DNA methylation. As has become increasingly clear over the past few decades, there's more to life than the four chemical letters or bases of DNA, known as A, C, T and G. These letters can be modified in certain ways, primarily by the addition of a small chemical tag known as a methyl group to the letter C. This modification is known as DNA methylation and is thought to play an important role in controlling how our genome gets used during normal development, normal life and in disease. To get the lowdown on the mysteries of methylation, I spoke to one of the leading experts in the field, Professor Peter Jones from the Van Andel Institute in Michigan.
2: The presence of 5-methylcytosine, in other words, a covalently modified extra base in DNA, uh, was really uh, found, I think, more than 60 years ago. But exactly 40 years ago, in 1975, there were two papers that appeared, one by Robin Holliday, who, who was here in England, and one by Arthur Riggs, who's in, the, um, in Southern California, postulating that the, these chemical marks on DNA could have uh, information coding properties. In other words, that they could specify which genes would be used and which ones would not be used. And very importantly, um, in these prophetic papers, they proposed a uh, mechanism for inheritance, so the idea was is that, you know, you, you inherit your genes, and then methylation patterns are put on the DNA by, uh, during development, which tell cells what they should do and what they not what, and what not to do. And just like the genes could be replicated, the methylation pattern can also be copied and replicated. And so this, these two papers really stimulated the field, And um, I got involved in the field uh, completely by chance. Uh, I was working with a drug which was developed in Prague, in Czechoslovakia, in the late 70s. And we found that this drug could uh, ch- change the differentiated state of cells very very markedly.
1: So make them forget what they were meant to be doing?
2: Yeah, well, actually, better than that, they, uh, you know, uh, tell them to do something else. Uh, they didn't only forget what they were, but they did something else. And they became, actually, they were nondescript cells growing in a culture dish. And we could change them. Into beating uh, muscle and fat and cartilage. So we had no idea how this could possibly be. It's very unusual. Um, but then when we looked into it in more detail, we discovered these papers that I just told you about. And we were able to figure out that the way these drugs worked is they worked as uh, erasers. So they got into the DNA, they removed the methylation from the DNA because they inhibited that process. And then the cells went ahead and did their thing and put in new methylation patterns and became either muscle, fat or cartilage. And so these um, experiments and, and those of Adrian Bird and others were really important in showing two things. First of all, that the patterns could be inherited. And secondly, that they could be changed. And if you change them... It had major impact on the cells.
1: One of the ways I really like thinking about DNA methylation is almost like kind of post-it notes in the recipe book, mm-hmm. uh, that, that kind of cells remember somehow that they're going to use these genes and not use that genes, and they need to keep remembering to do that. Where have we come from those early discoveries, that there were these kind of, these marks on DNA that then they could be taken off and that cells could then do new things?
2: Well, th- those were really hypotheses, and... Um they turned out to be essentially correct. So I think what we've done over the last few years is, is figure out um, how the patterns are copied. We've, we've worked out how these patterns are really important in telling cells apart from each other. We have found, uh, much to our surprise, that these patterns are fundamentally altered in human cancer uh, and, and in fact, can be used uh, to um, uh, to... Silence genes which are important in the development of cancer so that, in fact, um, cancer can develop because these methylation patterns are altered. And, and so it, it's been a really interesting uh, few years. Uh, also, uh, more recently, uh, the drug that I just told you about, 5-azocytidine, is now being used in patients to treat cancer. And so we've, we've gone the full loop from, a, from, a, from an idea... In 1975 to 30, 40 years later, actually having drugs in the clinic uh, which can be used to treat cancer in, in people. So it's a very exciting time.
1: What do you think are still some of the, I guess, the known unknowns, the questions that you still really want to answer?
2: Well, I think the, the, <laughs> the questions are still very, very substantial. We don't know at a very, very fine detail exactly how... Cells can put these patterns on in a precise manner, and we don't know exactly how the cells can recognise the patterns. We know they're altered, we know they're there, we know they're useful, we know they're deranged in cancer, but we don't know all the real details of of, of exactly how these, these patterns are applied.
1: With DNA methylation, it's a mark that's put onto DNA. It can be copied as cells divide. What do we know about the possibility that it could be even passed on, say, from parent to child? Because this is a really exciting but quite weird area, I guess.
2: Yes, it is, it is exciting. And I would also say it's, uh, it's not at all clear the extent to which that really happens. Um, I think that there is uh, a lot of interest in that area, particularly with the public. I mean, the public likes to hear about things like that, you know. Um, but I think the evidence at the moment is, is in my opinion, unconvincing. And we have a long way to go to be sure whether, in fact, that can happen. Because essentially what happens is when cells go through the germline, uh, when they make either sperm or eggs, the methylation patterns are essentially erased. They are reset and they're rejiggered in such a way that you can make a human being. And as part of that process, most of the, uh, 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 the changes that might have occurred earlier on are actually erased. But there are people that believe in, uh, that this can happen, and I would say the jury's still out.
1: The other things that we sometimes see in the paper, we hear the words epigenetics, we hear about maybe DNA methylation, and that it might be possible to change it, for example, influence it through what you eat or drink. Mm-hmm. What's the evidence on that? Can I pimp my genome through my diet?
2: That's <laughs> a very good question as to whether diet influences the epigenome. And, and so, yes, there are experiments which seem to show that. There have been experiments done in, in uh, pregnant mice, for example, which show that if you alter the diet of the mother, you can change um, methylation patterns and, and influence uh, various properties of the, of the, of the mice. Uh, but it, uh, the generality remains very, very unclear. And so there's a long way to go. Again, very controversial area. Some people believe in it, others don't.
1: So I guess if we're good scientists, we have to do the experiments and get the data.
2: Uh, yes, I would absolutely agree that that's necessary, yeah.
1: How do you feel about working in this field that's, that's taking our understanding of how genes work so much further than the, the four letters of DNA into this sometimes seemingly almost magical world of taking the genome that's in all our cells and then using it in so many different ways?
2: Well, I, I find it extremely exciting, you know, the fact that we can now begin to understand to a certain extent how this works. But yes, it's very, very exciting to understand its ramifications not only in normal human development but also in abnormal development and in late-onset diseases, which is what I think we now need to look at. Is there a role for changing DNA methylation patterns in the genesis of those diseases? We don't know, but we're beginning to look.
1: That was the Van Andel Institute's Peter Jones, and we'll be hearing from one of the scientists he mentioned, Adrian Bird, later on. We often talk about things being in the genes, from traits such as eye or hair colour, to our risk of different diseases. One of the main ways that scientists figure out how much a particular characteristic is down to genetics, known as its heritability, is by comparing identical twins, who share 100% of their genes, with non-identical or fraternal twins, who only have 50% of their DNA in common. Thanks to a unique study tracking thousands of pairs of twins as they grow up, Professor Robert Plowman and his team at King's College London have now discovered that genetics makes an unexpectedly large contribution to children's GCSE grades across a wide range of subjects.
3: In this uh, twin study, which we call the Twins Early Development Study, which is a study of about 7,000 pairs of twins in the UK, I was interested in focusing on an area that hasn't been studied much, and that's school achievement. So on the one hand, we know that cognitive ability, like intelligence, shows substantial genetic influence, but people hadn't really studied the business end of it in terms of, like, school achievement. And so we were surprised to find from the very first years of school that uh, school achievement, as measured by the national curriculum scores, is very highly heritable, you know, like 60% heritable. That means... Of the differences in children's performance in the national curriculum test, over half of those differences between children are due to DNA, genetic differences between them. So we're not identifying the DNA, but we're using the twin method to estimate not only the significance, but the effect size of genetic influence on school achievement. And it's very high. So we've been following them all along, and now that they hit 16, we wanted to use the GCSE scores, which you know, there aren't many countries where the same national tests are administered to everybody. And so what we found is the same sort of thing, that um, uh, GCSE scores are highly heritable. But what's new is that all the tests, you know, there's over 80 um, subjects that people can take for GCSEs. And all of them are highly heritable. And that surprised me because I would have thought, you know, the, the STEM subjects, science, technology, um, engineering, and math, would be more heritable for some reason, maybe because it involves intelligence to a greater extent, say, than drama and art. This is just a, totally exposing my biases, of course, as a scientist. But it wasn't true. They're all equally heritable. It's interesting that the scores are as equally heritable, despite the fact that some children are getting tutors and going to schools that have prepped them for GCSEs. Schools, we make a big deal about schools, but schools, you just say what school are kids in, explain far less than 20% of the variance. Explaining 50% of the variance with genetic differences is extraordinary when education totally ignores genetics. In teacher training or whatever, not a word is said about genetics. And so I'm just saying genetics is very important. But what's really novel about this study is a little bit harder to understand, and that is to say, okay, genetics affects all of these GCSE subjects, but is it different genes for everyone? Are there genes for drama and genes for music and genes for math? And the answer is definitely not. The genes, the same genes, are affecting performance on all of these GCSE scores the differences are probably more environmental if you're good at drama and not good at mass that's probably more of an environmental thing but the genetic action has to do with what's in common in performance across all of these things.
1: Is it not just that they're just generally smart they've got exactly. good intelligence genes?
3: I think that's you know that's what most people would say and so what we did is we took out intelligence we corrected for intelligence you can correct scores for age and sex and you can correct scores for Intelligence, say. So you can take these GCSE scores and make them independent of intelligence, statistically. And then the interesting thing was to say we get to find that we got the same results. So everything's equally heritable, independent of intelligence. And what's even more surprising, again, it's the same genes that affect all of those intelligence-corrected GCSE scores. So what that means is that, you know, your hypothesis is a good one, that a lot of what the genetic correlation among all these GCSE scores is about is intelligence. But what's amazing is you take out intelligence, and you find, yes, there's still genetic influence, but it also works in a very general way, and that suggests it's like an academic ability genetically-driven academic ability.
1: When you say that this ability, this academic ability, is heritable, does this mean that we can pin down and say, it's this gene, it's that gene, it's this gene? Can we find these genes?
3: Well, a first step in, in trying to find genes is to find something that's heritable. And the research over the last few years saying that cognitive abilities and now school achievement is highly heritable motivates people to try and find genes. But what we know so far from all of the life sciences is that for complex traits, that is not for the thousands of single gene disorders that are very rare, but for the common disorders in medicine like cardiovascular sort of disease or obesity or psychiatric things like alcoholism and depression, they're heritable, but... They're not due to one gene by any means. We're thinking now there's thousands of genes of very small effect, which means it's going to be extremely difficult to identify the specific DNA differences responsible for the heritability. But it's all part of a package. I mean, it'd be nice if we're just talking about a handful of genes, the genes for math or something like that. But, you know, if, if this is what nature's, what we're finding, then we're just going to have to roll up our sleeves, get the strategies that will allow us to identify not the gene or the few genes, but the thousands of genes that are responsible for the heritability of these complex traits.
1: King's College London's Robert Plowman, whose study came out in the journal Nature Scientific Reports, will be looking in more depth at his twin study, as well as other large-scale genetic studies, in next month's podcast. Studies like Robert's and many others have allowed researchers to start pinning down thousands of gene faults or mutations involved in a wide range of diseases and disorders, from cancer and heart disease to schizophrenia or depression. A gene recently linked to autism encodes a protein called UBE3A, which appears to control how nerve cells in the brain connect to each other. The levels of UBE3A are normally controlled by a kind of molecular switch known as phosphorylation, which involves attaching a chemical tag to a site on UBE3A, switching it off. But what happens when the switch can't be thrown and UBE3A can't be turned off? The result is autism, according to University of North Carolina researcher Mark Zilka.
4: Basically, as with many things in science, uh, we got lucky. There's really a revolution that's taking place in the area of autism genetics, and this is a revolution that's really just begun a few years ago. There are several large groups, large consortia that are sequencing the genomes of individuals with autism and their unaffected parents, and they're searching for genetic mistakes in the kids that are not present in the parents. And what they're finding are a large number of these these new mutations that are present in the children with autism that are not present in the parents and two of these studies were just published in December and in this stu- in these studies there are literally thousands and thousands of mutations, and one of them was in UB3A. I sent that information to Jason Yee, the postdoc in my lab, and I asked him, "Can you, you tell me where is this mutation in UB3A? Um, and a couple hours later, he, he basically came back to me. He had this huge grin on his face. He said, you're not going to believe this, but that mutation is in the phosphorylation site that prevents phosphorylation. And so that was really the, sort of the, the eureka or aha moment. But as with, you know, as with anything, we wanted to really confirm this. This material is available. And so we were able to obtain the cells from the child and the parents, grow them up in our lab, and then sequence uh, to confirm that that child did indeed have that mutation, whereas the parents did not. And then we were able to get ex- uh, UB3A extracted from those human cells and show that the individual with autism had a hyperactive version of UB3A whereas the parents did not. And so that was really unprecedented for for us to be able to do something like that.
1: We know that autism is a neurodevelopmental disorder. It causes changes, problems in the brain. Were there any signs that having this overactive protein might be affecting any of the cells in the brain?
4: We believe uh, yes. And so the way we uh, looked at that was to take uh, a ver- this, this hyperactive version of UB3A and um, insert it into the brain of an animal model in a subset of cells, a subset of neurons. And then we looked at those neurons that contain this hyperactive version of UB3A and looked at uh, the, the number of spines uh, or dendrites uh, on, the, on the neurons. And so spines um, uh, make up synapses. And synapses are essentially the points of communication uh, from one neuron to the next. And what we noticed was that the neurons that took up this hyperactive version of UB3A had many more spines than the neurons that did not. And this, again, really sort of points a finger towards autism because of autopsy studies that have been done. And one of the hallmark uh, features of individuals with autism is, uh, is an excess of spines in their in their brains.
1: Potentially, what proportion of cases of autism are we talking about being uh, caused or being involved with this kind of genetic fault?
4: It's about 0.25% of all um, patients with autism. That may seem like a small number, but this um, actually represents the third most common chromosomal abnormality uh, in patients with autism. So it's it's a fairly common uh, form of autism.
1: I'm sure that people who have children with autism and we thinking okay so where are some cures then where are some treatments <laughs> how could this work pave the way for, for maybe treatments that could help children with autism.
4: Yeah, so what this work suggests is that targeting UB3A, turning off UB3A might represent a, a new a new way to treat autism. So we can uh, take advantage of this phosphorylation event. Uh, that could, in turn, tamp down uh, the activity of UB3A and hence uh, provide uh, a therapeutic benefit.
1: It sounds like genetics has really changed our understanding of autism and the way that we research it. How do you see this revolution continuing?
4: Just like with cancer, there are, thousands, you know, there are many different types of cancer. There are probably, and There clearly are many different genetic types of autism sequencing individuals with autism is going to be uh, the future, so we're no longer lumping them all together as uh, individuals with autism, but as individuals with certain forms of autism.
1: Mark Zilka from the University of North Carolina, and that research was published in the journal Cell. You're listening to the Naked Genetics podcast with me, Dr Kat Arney. Still to come, we'll be lighting up our lives with the gene of the month. But first, it's time to take another look at this month's topic of DNA methylation, or more specifically, Rett syndrome, the rare but severe genetic disease caused by defects in the gene encoding a protein called MeCP2, which sticks to methylated DNA. Professor Adrian Bird from the University of Edinburgh has dedicated his career to studying DNA methylation and the molecules that recognise it and is hopeful that his research might one day lead to new treatments or even a cure for children affected by Rett syndrome.
0: Rett syndrome is an autism spectrum disorder uh, which is very distinctive. It was discovered by Andreas Rett in, in, in Vienna it is caused by mutations in a gene. So it's a genetic disorder, but it just so happens that the gene uh, that is mutated encodes a protein that is involved in epigenetic um, reading of of the genome. And specifically, what that protein is supposed to do is bind to methylated sites on DNA, which is a methyl group is just like a little nutty, Knob that you can stick onto DNA and uh, MECP2 it recognizes and binds to that and in the absence of that protein the brain does not work properly.
1: So this protein Mm -hmm. MECP2 is kind of recognizing this mark on the DNA involved somehow in, in turning genes off inside cells. What do we know about how this genetic fault is it affecting brain cells? And how are you trying to understand this disease and, and bring forward some treatments, perhaps?
0: Well, that's what makes... Obviously, there's the, the human issue of uh, dealing with the consequence of this that would one would like to fix, but there is a... a the, the, the attractive thing from a research perspective is that here you have a complex disorder that affects cognition, understanding, behaviour, etc., and you know exactly at the molecular level... Uh, what the cause is. Now, what one is trying to do is take little steps that you understand in going from the mutations that uh, affect this protein to those complex outcomes, and we have not yet joined them up. People are working down from the brain and what's happening in the brain. The nerves do not um, seem to mature properly. There are groups of people who are trying to work out why not and then there's the bottom-up approach where you start with the gene and find out what the protein that uh, interacts with. And uh, um, that's, one of the, that's the approach we have largely taken. Uh, and in the end, the idea is that those coming downwards and those coming upwards will meet. And so far, that, that hasn't happened. But to me, it has all the ingredients that it's, it's a good place to start looking for what autism in general and intellectual disabilities, what their genetic roots might be.
1: Tell me about some of the results you've had trying to fix or repair this genetic fault.
0: A feature of Rett syndrome is that it's not neurodegenerative. So in other words, the nerve cells, although they're rather simplified, they don't have as many branches as these cells usually do, they are alive. And so this obviously raises the possibility that if you were to put back the protein, um, would they um, become mature now? Late in the day? And the reason why this is an interesting question is because it was widely assumed that it would be too late. <clears throat> uh, I think there's a general view that um, neurological disorders of all kinds uh, are uh, more or less ir- irrevocable, and that's re- really reinforced by the fact that there are hardly any effective treatments for any of these kinds of uh, uh, disorders. Uh, And so there is the idea that the brain goes through this complex development, it does certain things at certain times, and you need all the proteins to be there, and if you miss that, it's too late, you can't go back and redo it. So we devised a a way of testing this idea, which was to make an animal model of Rett syndrome that did not have the... MECP2 protein, and and it's a very good model in a lot of respects of of, of the human disorder. And then we put it back. We did this through a genetic uh, trick. So we waited until the animals were ill, and then we switched on the gene. And the prediction of the uh, critical period, critical window hypothesis, would be that it wouldn't make any difference, but actually it turned out that they got almost completely better. So what that means is that there wasn't a critical window where you needed this protein, actually not having it uh, makes the brain not work properly. And if you put it back, the brain starts to work properly, which was a totally surprising result to many people, um, including us, I have to say. What it, of course, does is mean that, that if, it raises the prospect that the human disorder will be curable. And certainly it's fueled a lot of research in many labs to try to act uh, on that po- uh, hopeful possibility.
1: There must be a huge number of families affected by this disorder who are really desperate for cures. How soon do you think this may get into human studies and are the families really interested in this kind of research?
0: The families are extremely interested in, in, in this kind of research. I mean, uh, uh, at the moment there is no meaningful therapy and this offers hope. As for being able to tell them when uh, that hope will be realised, that's, uh, of course, a very uncertain thing because until you actually have a therapy, uh, you don't know. I mean, I could say, oh, it would be very disappointing if in 10 years' time there was not some therapeutic approach. And I would be disappointed, but do I know that in 10 years' time there will be an approach? I, I, I don't. There's a lot of work going on and there are some quite hopeful preliminary results but nothing, I would say, that makes you think, uh, oh, in two years that'll be in the clinic. And, of course, getting from an idea or even a drug or a process into the clinic is a, is a pretty difficult to, thing to do in and of itself, even if you have the therapy there. I think all the preliminary work in in Rett syndrome suggests that uh, this disorder is is one of the most promising ones for uh, there to be therapy in the fullness of time. Uh, It's not the only one. Fragile X syndrome is also a common autism spectrum disorder. So there is hope now, as there never has been before, I think.
1: That was Adrian Bird from the University of Edinburgh. And finally, here's our gene of the month. And this time, it's Lava Lamp. Named after the popular and somewhat hypnotic 1960s decorative lighting fixture, Lava Lamp was first identified in fruit flies in the year 2000 when researchers were looking for genes involved in helping cells to split in two as they divide in the early embryo. Like the coloured bubbles in the novelty lamp, the Lava Lamp protein is located in blobby pockets, known as vesicles, in a special part of the cell called the Golgi body. Lava lamp seems to interact with another fly gene called LRRK, a molecular cousin of a gene involved in human Parkinson's disease and might be implicated in the development of the disease as Golgi bodies are important for proper nerve structure and nerve function. That's all for now. I'll be back next month looking at how large-scale population studies, known as cohort studies, are revealing important information about the genes involved in all kinds of traits and diseases, and reporting back from the annual British Science Association Festival in Bradford. If you've got any questions or feedback, just email me. That's genetics at thenakedscientist.com. You can get in touch through the Naked Scientist Facebook page or by tweeting at Naked Genetics. Every episode of the Naked Genetics Podcast is on iTunes and online at NakedScientist.com slash genetics. The Naked Genetics Podcast is brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I'll see you next month for another peek inside your genes.